were told when it struck by lightning. Same thing that happens to everything else. Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. And this is the second in our series of bonus episodes uh, where we're going to take a look at Marvel's cinematic history before there was such a thing as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, It's very uneven. Uh, I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, it is. It's a in the way that it might be rough. Yes, it is very uneven. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the the first time we did one of these, uh, we covered the 1994 Fantastic Four movie um, with our friend Levi Buchanan. Uh, That was the movie that was made purely as a way uh, that Constantine Films could keep the film rights from reverting to Marvel. Um, It was never actually released, uh, you know, but the Internet is your friend. And it was so bad that Rob and I had not seen each other in person uh, since then. Yeah. Uh, Until last night. (laughs) And that's what I meant by rough, though. That Fantastic Four movie. Oh, yeah. But we did see each other again. Which was lovely. Yeah, I can verify that that you and, and your lovely wife, Barb, still exist in the flesh. Um, yep. You're not just a clever simulation. Uh, yeah, we did a little backyard movie night at my place. And uh, and what did we watch, Rob? We watched the first X-Men movie from the year 2000. Somehow that's 20 years ago now. In some ways, it seems like it's 400 years ago now um, because of the last five years or so. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean... Bill Clinton was president when that movie came out. I, I realized that and it blew my mind. Yeah, um, I there. I mean, I have a lot of references for the Matrix in my head for 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that does give me this post of time, a landmark. Otherwise, I'm a hazy mess. I can't tell yesterday from five years ago for real. Yeah. It, not that it wasn't lovely to see you and Barb, um, but uh, I think even better, uh, we invited a special guest over so that we could trick her into guesting on the show. Um, and so she is the owner of Books with Pictures here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, she let us do our first and thus far only live show in her store <laughs> at the end of February. Katie Proctor, thank you for joining us today. I am so happy to be here, you guys. We have been trying to get you on the show for a very long time, but uh, it turns out managing a retail store in uh, the middle of a global pandemic and all sorts of civil unrest doesn't leave you with a ton of free time. Symmetrical, of course, is that I feel like I've spent a lot of time with you guys because I have been doing deliveries every day. And so I've been very faithfully listening to the podcast. So you haven't had me, but I've had a lot of you. Oh, well, thank you. And sorry. So now you're having a bizarre meta inception moment. (laughs) So, Katie, for those who might not be aware of Books with Pictures, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the shop and what the mission of the shop is? So uh, Books with Pictures was designed from the ground up to be an inclusive, inviting, newbie-friendly, queer-friendly, POC-friendly, woman-friendly shop. Um, And really where I was coming from when I was putting that together was from, you know, we can get into it later, but I grew up sort of in a very tangential place with comics fandom. I would come to it and then fall away from it. Um, It was not a thing I had a lot of friends who were into and uh, spent a lot of time sort of in that space of not feeling like enough of a fan, not feeling like a real fan, Um, whatever sort of gatekeeping lines those are. um, I always sort of felt like I was falling on the wrong side of them. And 
when I came to Portland, because like by coincidence that Portland is full of comics people, my friends group became full of comics people, uh, which was amazing and sort of really deepened my experience of comics as a collaborative medium, as something that was really, uh, really interesting and engaging for me. And it was whatever, as, as this last decade has rolled through various waves of new, fresh gatekeeping and the, the Comicscape folks and whatever, uh, my little social justice heart has been angry over all of that. And so I was really uh, in a moment where my previous sort of career track was coming to a branching point and I had the opportunity to do something new. And I wanted to create a space where I could say that it was for everyone, but really when you are of a group that has been traditionally excluded or made to feel not enough, just hearing someone from a traditional gatekeeping role, like a comic shop owner, say, well, it's for everyone, doesn't necessarily sound inviting if you are used to interpreting that as meaning it's for everyone, but not for me. It's not not for you. It's not, not for you. <laughs> um, I wanted to make a space that was about saying, no, specifically, we are going to make sure that there are books by and featuring people of color in their pages, that we are specifically going to be a place where you can pretty reliably, if a queer creator has a new book coming out, we're pretty reliably going to have it, even if it's from a smaller press or whatever. When we are a place where there is browsing, um, I've always made an effort to make sure that when you just scan the shelves, that there is roughly uh, equal faces of men and women on the books that are featured. I do a lot of work to not exclude sexualized content, but to make sure that it's a space that's not overwhelmed with objectified images of women. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. Just ways to make it feel more inclusive and more immediately welcoming. Um, I also have a pretty extensive kids section, which is partly because I have kids and I love kids. And I think some of the most innovative work that's happening in comics right now is happening in the middle grade and young adult markets. And partly because I wanted to be a place where women could come and get their own fan on. And because women are statistically disproportionately caring for children, um, having a space where children could come is an important part of having a space that's welcoming for all women and everyone who's caring for kids. So all of that went into putting together the store, which is now we just had our fourth anniversary and our first anniversary of being in our new space. We were uh, nominated for the Eisner Spirit of Retailing Award last year. Uh, we've repeatedly been on the shortlists for uh, sort of the best in Portland comic shops from the local weeklies. So I feel like we've done pretty well for ourselves um, and more to come. Yeah, absolutely. So, Katie, we, we had you on for a couple of reasons here. Um, the first is, uh, you know, because, you know, Books with Pictures is really designed to be a very inclusive space, uh, especially an LGBTQ friendly space. Um, this episode is coming out on the very last day of Pride Month, um, which this year was a little different than other years have been um, for a number of reasons. But, you know, we we hadn't had a chance to really do anything for that. Um, and we did want to 
um, put something out there uh, to show our support for that community. And so uh, we wanted to have you on as a guest because of your commitment to the community. And also, you know, we wanted to make a little bit of noise about some uh, some organizations that we have supported uh, ourselves with our money uh, over the years, Basic Rights Oregon and Outside In. Um, and I think we were talking before the show, but uh, you mentioned that there's a couple organizations in town that, uh, that Books with Pictures has uh, supported um, that we should shout out here. Yeah, so uh, we uh, tend to give support to the Q Center, which is a community center in town, and to Transactive, which is a support community uh, in particular for families of trans youth. Uh, But I do want to say one of the really interesting things about this complicated Pride Month that we've been in um, is that we are uh, 30 days into this sort of civil rights uprising that's happening in the U.S. and globally. And I feel like it's always important when talking about queer issues to be attentive to the ways that they're intersectional. Um, but this year in particular, I feel like paying attention to the ways that Black lives are de- devalued in this country is an important part of talking about um, sort of all of our civil rights struggles. Um, And so I also do want to give a shout out to the Black uh, Resilience Fund, which is a community-driven drive in Portland, uh, really to put crisis money into the hands of Black Portlanders. And the folks who are running it are Black, queer, younger community leaders. Um, Cameron Witten is one of the faces behind it. Um, and just extraordinary folks working on really direct action. Uh, we were able to make a donation uh, last weekend for Juneteenth from the shop. And it's a, a brand new organization that I'm pretty excited about. And we'll make sure that we have uh, links to all those organizations uh, in the show notes. So if you are listening to this um, and you have your phone handy, please go ahead and check those out. Um, if you have a couple extra bucks um, in these times, I am certain that every one of these organizations could use them um, and your money would be uh, going to some very good causes and doing some very good work. Um, so Pride Month was the first reason uh, that we wanted to have uh, you here as our guest. The second reason is that, as I understand it, this movie was your first exposure to anything Marvel related. Basically, yeah. And you, so this came out in 2000 and you opened a comic book store in 2015, 2016? 2016, yep. 2016. I mean, I know that comics are bigger than Marvel, but <laughs> how did you go from, from your first exposure to like a serious piece of Marvel culture to opening a comic book store in 16 years? I grew up in a town where the comic shop was not really a place where kids could go. It was kind of that grungy dude's space. Like it was not a space I had. So my first comics were, um, I mean, aside from shout out to Doonesbury, which was my first complex continuity um, (laughs) and uh, also probably responsible for my American history degree. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, of course, and the newspaper strips. Aside from that, Sandman was my first comic because I was a gothy teenager with gothy feelings. My impression of Marvel, especially as a teenager, was that it was the TNA of comics. Like it was this intensely, you know, it was the 90s, the art style. And actually a lot of the art from that period I still find very off-putting, frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, And so my 
sense of those particular Cape comics was that even if there was something good in them, I had no guide, I had no entry point. The internet was, you know, pretty pretty rudimentary at the time. And I was not gonna go hunting. I was spending a ton of time playing D&D and Vampire the Masquerade and other things that were taking up my nerd bandwidth. And so Marvel just wasn't really on my radar, especially as a, as a high school kid. It wasn't in my world. Uh, but what I did have, because I was growing up in a pretty small town, uh, was my movie crew. And I had this like high school gang I actually worked on a bookstore that was on the same street as the movie theater. And so I had my sort of high school crew and we went to see every blockbuster movie on opening night, usually with elaborate costumes, uh, sort of in a rowdy posse of teenagers who were probably loathed by the theater staff, except the ones who were our friends. Um, (laughs) And... And so we went to see The Matrix and we went to see Men in Black and we went to see Independence Day. And there's sort of this whole sort of group of movies that for me are all in the same group because they're what I saw when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I graduated high school in 2000. And so this movie was like the last summer that we did that. Um, And so I went with my crew and it really was like my first moment of superhero identification in that way of like, no, there's stuff here that I'm interested in. That said, I did not become a regular Marvel reader. Fake girl confessions here. I did not become (laughs) a regular Marvel reader until Squirrel Girl started coming out. Squirrel Girl was my (laughs) first description Marvel series. Um, And then Secret Wars uh, got me, like the the most recent Secret Wars, not the one before that with the Beyonder and not the (laughs) most recent Secret Wars. Yeah, that was the one that got me. Oh my Uh, God. That's that's how old I am. Oh, the one with the Beyonder? Oh yeah, I think Uh Secret Secret Wars 2, it wasn't even the the good secret wars yeah it was the the second bad one yeah yeah (laughs) it was the stranger in a strange land like wearing a weird leisure suit um yeah i read all of those uh but we had already we were reading so many different comics at that point in my house my you know it was like i had a few things i wanted my brother and my dad had things they wanted so we had a big pile of comics and i would read them but a, a lot of them i would be like meh but still, I read them because it was comics. I was definitely in that park for uh, most of the late 90s into uh, now. I became more involved in the slightly like Vertigo and Elseworlds and things like that opened my eyes to other kinds of comics. So if it was a big crossover event for Marvel, I was like, la, la, la. I don't care. Um, but I still would chip through that. Yeah. For me, I one of my sort of first sets of Portland friends uh, was uh, Jay Edidin and Miles Stokes of the Jay and Miles Explain X-Men <laughs> podcast. Yes. Although before that, I actually I got to be sort of part of the genesis moment of that, which was really cool. Nice. Um, and then Jay was really intimately part of the genesis piece of Books with Pictures. And so when Squirrel Girl started coming out, Miles and I were spending a lot of time together and Miles was like, you need to read this thing. Like, this is important. (laughs) And then actually at a party that Jay and Miles threw is where I met Douglas Wolk, who has been a guest on this podcast. And my very dearest friend, and he dropped on my porch a brown paper grocery bag that had 
all of Secret Wars, including all of the crossovers, in reading order. That's a very Douglas Wolk thing to do. It (laughs) was such a gift. Um, And then after that, I was doing a lot of business travel because I was doing tech consulting. And so I was on airplanes Mm -hmm. all the time and staying in lonely hotel rooms in San Francisco. And he would send me, he gave me his Marvel Unlimited login. And so he would send me like reading lists um, that are sort of the precursor to the discussion board he runs now Yeah, that were like, you should read exactly these sets of Ant-Man or whatever. And so I had this c- programmed curriculum of <laughs> figuring out Marvel in that, in those years, uh, which was pretty amazing. And uh, as far as like a compassionate, non-gatekeeping entryway into Marvel Comics, I it was the luckiest turn. There's a lot to wade through, and if you can have somebody focus through things that might interest you, that is yeah. <laughs> Well, and also need. to have, yeah. you know, to have someone say, no, don't bother reading that, it's not good. Or, you know, this thing's going to piss you off, but this work is worth reading anyway, and here's why, for me, was a big deal. Yeah, I, I feel like we are in some ways the anti-Douglas where we impose upon our friends to read uh, just a random month's worth of <laughs> 10 often terrible comics <laughs> and then don't give them any context for it and then make them talk about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's... yeah, we're, 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 we're doing this all wrong. <laughs> we're turning people off from comics. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, so Let's go ahead uh, and and take a break. Um, And when we come back, uh, let's talk about this movie. So uh, everybody stay tuned and we'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. All right, we are back here on Marvel by the Month. We are doing a bonus episode where we are talking about X-Men, which was released in July of 2000 by 20th Century Fox. Uh, It was produced by Lauren Schuller-Donner and Ralph Winter for Marvel Entertainment Group, because this is before there was such a thing as Marvel Studios. Also co-producing the Donner's Company and Bad Hat Harry Productions, uh, which was director Brian Singer's company. He uh, was the director of The Usual Suspects uh, prior to this. Uh, he went on to direct uh, a bunch of X-Men movies, Bohemian Rhapsody, Superman Returns, um, and is, uh, I think, the most generous way you could put it, a very problematic fave. He, uh, I don't know how much or how little we want to get into um, all the other things that Brian Singer did in Hollywood that were not directing movies. A lot of really terrible allegations um, that came to light during the, you know, the Me Too and the Times Up movements. Um, a lot of allegations of abuse and assault, uh, especially toward um, young male actors uh, in Hollywood. And uh, he's not working right now, so I, I think that's for the best. Anyway. Uh, the screenplay was by David Hayter, um, and it starred Captain Picard as Professor X, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in his Hollywood debut. He was cast three weeks into filming this movie. <laughs> they started filming the movie and didn't have their Wolverine. Wow. That's... Yeah. Glenn Danzig had been lobbying for that <laughs> for <laughs> years uh, in the pages of Wizard Magazine and elsewhere. Um, so... He had to take that personally. That would have been a very, he's just not the actor though, that <laughs> you might want. Uh, to, there's there's a lot of stuff that needs to be carried through that movie by Wolverine's character. And I, you know, I don't know. I feel like he just couldn't have pulled that off. Probably not. 
uh, we also had uh, Ian McKellen, Sir. I'm sorry, we had Sir Ian McKellen uh, as Magneto, uh, Halle Berry as Storm, Famke Jansen as Jean Grey, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog's best friend James Marsden as Cyclops. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's a murderer's row of talent. Ray Park uh, as Toad. Like, I think it was his first role after Darth Maul. How is Sonic your referent for James Marsden? Because I have a seven-year-old son and I have seen that movie about half a dozen times in the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh, Anna Paquin uh, starred as Rogue, um, who's arguably the main character of the movie. Um, so, uh, yeah, just like a tremendous, tremendous lineup of talent. And the movie did really well. It earned $296.3 million on a $75 million production budget. It was the eighth highest grossing movie of 2000. Uh, domestically. It became uh, the highest grossing opening weekend for a superhero film at the time, the sixth biggest opening of all time. And it's absolutely directly responsible for the explosion of superhero movies that continues to this day. Like I think the the superhero movie that came out before this, the biggest one that came out before this was Mystery Men. So yeah, uh, that's where we're at. Uh, You know, the the Joel Schumacher Batman movies had kind of driven it into the ground um, prior to this. (laughs) They were digging a hole for it. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's jump into uh, to the story here. Um, The uh, movie opens with a screensaver. Professor X is telling us what mutants are in case you slept through um, freshman year biology in high school. We understand that there are people who are born with these strange powers. um, and uh, that this is something that happens over the course of time with evolution. Then we uh, cut to Nazi-occupied Poland, uh, where a young Eric Lindscher, um is using his magneto powers to try and prevent himself and his parents uh, from being dragged into Auschwitz. And this is a really intense way to open this movie. And I feel like it really sets the tone that this is not George Clooney winking at the camera in a bat suit. Yeah, this... This was when I uh, realized that they might not get it wrong. And, you know, so Judge Dredd was one of my favorite comics uh, when I was a kid. Uh, So five years before this, there was the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie, which was if I was a balloon, I would have been 100 percent deflated after that (laughs) movie. Um, I had no interest in comic book movies at that point anymore. I, I thought that the they were all going to be garbage and there was no reason to try to uh, move, uh, have comic books as a, uh, you know, cinematic medium because they just fail every time. <laughs> and so starting out this way, I was like, oh, maybe this time it's going to work. And uh, just starting so strongly with uh, the villain that you can understand their motivations for. Uh, and so just starting there, I'm like, perfect. This might be good. So one of the really, um, I've since learned common traits of people who grew up uh, in my generation of especially like more reform Judaism is that we grew up um, really drenched in Holocaust history. We were of an age where we had survivors in our congregations. We had like people who had lived through this experience as uh, sort of the elder members of our community. Um, And like, I have these very intense, like early childhood memories, like six, seven years old memories of like watching videos of concentration camps. Wow. And so opening this movie with this scene when I was a teenager was really intense because I, most of my sort of squad were um, secular or were Christian. And 
uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time being the only Jew in the room, but this was a really intense thing to be the only Jew in the room for. And I remember afterwards um, that a lot of my friends had the response of what the hell was that? As opposed to all of these references are very clear to me and I know exactly what the hell that is, um, which was interesting. So that was like my my high school experience of it was this thing that like clearly was emotionally affecting me in a way that was different than how it was emotionally affecting my my peers. Last night though, watching it again in this moment where family separation is such a salient question for the way that the camps that the U.S. is running is happening. This scene of this little boy being ripped away from his mother was absolutely intense in a new way. Yes. Um, of just sort of reminding us that that, that is, is always awful. I didn't expect it to, those visuals to hit me the way they did, but it's an extraordinary scene. It is. It's also, I think this is the first time I've seen this movie since I became a parent myself. And I understood the horror of that in the abstracts. The last time I watched it, you know, it was about 10 years ago. Um, but there's just, it, it hits you on a gut level. Um, yeah. You know, once you've, you have a kid, I think. Um, and, and like you said, Katie, with everything else going on in the world that, you know, if you are a compassionate and aware person it, it is impossible to drown any of this stuff out at this point and so yeah um it's really very effective but yeah it's a hell of a scene um it also visually um i'm really interested in how that moment has been reproduced in the comics over and over because it's you know it's something that's pretty panel for panel true mm-hmm. to the first time we see that introduction of magneto mm-hmm. or yeah. magneto's backstory yeah it's also in the first couple pages of Ed Pisker's um, X-Men book, right? He plays that scene almost panel for panel the same way that we see it in the introduction of this movie. So clearly it's iconic and resonant in how Magneto as a character exists sort of in our imagination. It is really key to understanding his character, which I I appreciate. Yeah, there's no better villain than a sympathetic villain, but also, you know, he was a villain... I rooted for uh, often, um, which is just, it's weird. It's weird to, to identify more with a villain in a comic that's about like outsiders <laughs> in some cases than uh, because of just anger and, and, uh, and watching history repeat and, but also understanding fully that he's becoming what he despises, you know, what he's becoming, he's been shaped into a monster by monstrosity. He's just such an interesting villain um, to yeah. me and not, not exactly in the comics all the time because we just recently <laughs> covered some just dumb Magneto comics. But, We're going uh, <laughs> to get to Claremont soon. It'll be so much I know. better. It'll We're going to get to Claremont in like three or four three or years of this podcast. Yeah, soon. Like, oh no. Now that we've made it through a year, I think I can start to look forward to those times. I really enjoy uh, listening to you guys do the early X-Men, uh, but it is distinctly in the category of uh, you read them so I don't have to. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe that should be the tagline of the podcast. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, even not not those X-Men stories necessarily, but I mean, the, the I think that the opening scene of the movie just kind of also harkens back to something that's true about the X-Men from their their very, very beginning, which is that 
the the best X-Men stuff is always when they uh, when Marvel deploys them as a stand-in for marginalized groups. Um so they can tell stories about a certain type of bigotry or exclusion uh or hatred without triggering a backlash. Like, you know, Stanley especially more toward the end of his life was very open about the fact that his idea to have this anti-mutant sentiment um in the comics was it was his way of commenting on what was going on with the civil rights movement at the time because, you know, his wife's cousin, Martin Goodman, still wanted to be able to sell comic books in all 50 states um and you know, if he started telling explicit polemics about white people should be better to black people, you know, you could probably kiss 10 or 20 of those states goodbye. Um, and they still buy comics in Mississippi. So Stan, you know, he, he used the X-Men as, as sort of that metaphor. And, and I mean, this is over the course of, you know, the entire run of the comics, not every creator, not every story, but I mean, you, you see them being used to tell metaphorical stories about, you know, people who are living with AIDS uh, or HIV or Jewish people or, you know, ethnic minorities are being targeted by attempted genocides, things like that. Um, and especially, um, I, I think it's in the late 90s and early 2000s, there's a lot of LGBT parallels. Like there was that that sweet spot when uh, it, it became socially acceptable to do uh, explicit commentary about gay rights and gay liberation. But mainstream America had not embraced it yet. And I think that's where you see um, the X-Men telling some of these stories, you know, with sort of the fig leaf of it's like, oh, no, we're talking about mutants, not gay people. But I mean, it's there. It's there if you want to see it. And it's interesting that you say that because in the context of this movie, yeah, we were talking uh, last night about um, our friend Stephanie Burt, who is brilliant about comics. Um, and in particular is a deep, deep X-Men fan. And her like one-liner about this movie is that it manages to strip X-Men of all of its queer content and its director was a monster. Um, so, you oh, know, wow. those, those are our two like <laughs> downsides of this otherwise perfectly fine X-Men film is that yeah. it, it manages to be entirely unqueer um, and had a mm, director. But the complicated thing about the political moment where it was made was sort of what we could and could not do around yeah. queerness. Like Mystique is one of the great queer characters of X-Men. We know this. She has this complicated history with destiny and, and it's just, it's gone. It is not, it is not implied. It is not nudged at. It is not winked at. It is utterly, she is an accessory of Magneto's and that is her entire presence in the film. And overly sexualized for some for whatever purpose, probably to sell more, you know, tickets. Sure. But yeah, it's, I remember seeing that. And even my younger brother's like, who's a little on more on the macho side. He's like, uh, why don't they give her like her costume? Um, you know, he, he's, <laughs> does she not get clothes? Does, right. Did like, we just did, run out of budget on that? Why did we take, <laughs> seems like it would take more to make that whole weird blue skin suit than, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so even he's like not va va voom. All right. There's like an almost nude person. It's just that was one moment where I thought, could you please not do this? But or at least give her her precog girlfriend to check out her <laughs> lovely blueness. You That's know, true. Like, I'll take that. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. The bar was so low that I still 
you know, let, <laughs> let the, that slide. Um, it's, if you put Judge Dredd as like where I totally lost all hope in, in, in movies for comics, uh, then I'm like, this is still going okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better than Judge Dredd raids Rob Milne. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it really does feel like they kind of channeled all of the discrimination and bias metaphor and just focused it specifically on anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you start out in Auschwitz um, and then the next thing we see is that we uh, we're in Congress where Senator Robert Kelly is introducing the Mutant Registration Act, which is, you know, obviously very, very clearly meant to be a parallel to 1930s Germany where Jewish uh, citizens are being forced to register um, and, you know, declare themselves uh, as Jewish. Um, And, you know, Magneto and Professor X are both watching this. Obviously, Magneto has some concerns. Um, Professor X does too, but um, Magneto's the one who's ready to do something about it. What are you doing here? Why do you ask questions to which you already know the answers? Don't give up on the merit. What would you have me do, Charles? I've heard these arguments before. It was a long time ago. Mankind has evolved since then. Yes, into us. Then we cut to Meridian, Mississippi. Um, We meet Rogue. She is hanging out with her boyfriend, gives him a kiss, accidentally puts him into a coma. And what has got to be like one of the most traumatizing possible things to happen to someone like just as they're, you know, adolescent and like, you know, all sorts of hormones and feelings are going through their body. And your very first experience is that you wind up almost killing the first person you kiss. This is a great way to show that fear of your own powers. And Rogue's always been a good character. So like, what am I becoming? And you're this, this move from adolescence into adulthood being so super traumatic. Uh, so they did that all in a nice little encapsulated scene and the don't touch me and the, and the I'm running away. The, like all of that felt, felt right for me too. Hey, I really appreciated all of the sort of teenage acting uh, in that scene. I think that in particular, the there is a like logistical acting challenge in it which is that if she has this new power that just came on and put her boyfriend in a coma obviously her mother's first impulse is to comfort her and the ability to sort of weaponize teenage screaming to get through the logistics of like not also incapacitating both of her parents i thought was really like it was a really crucial tricky moment yeah um of like why is she not been embraced by her mother um, and it's because she is having a teenage screaming meltdown. And I appreciate that. <laughs> it was very well done. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So she is so rogue. Uh, she flees town and she she gets way out of town. She manages to make her way all the way to Canada. Well, she had the uh, map on her wall. It's the first thing we see of her is right. the map on yeah. her wall of how to get from Mississippi to Canada. She, she knows. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. she's she going to go to Anchorage. Yeah. yeah. With her boyfriend. That's yeah. right. She had the map. Ah, it's airtight. It's airtight. Uh, <laughs> Niagara it's like, Falls and just a few hundred miles later, we're in Anchorage, she said. <laughs> not how geography works. But she was going to high school in Mississippi, so maybe that's how they teach geography there. <laughs> I don't know. 
I'm not quite sure how she got across the border. Um, I'm also not quite sure how she is able to get into this incredibly sketchy dive bar uh, where she winds up, um, where they have uh, bare knuckled fights going on um, for entertainment, I guess, because that's what you do in Alberta when it's winter, which is 10 months of the year. Which is a, a full cage, literal cage match in the middle of this bar. And I do remember that being a part of some of those uh, some Wolverine comics, you know, like having him groggy, doesn't understand his past, pretty much has amnesia every morning and just goes back to doing the same, uh, you know, drinking, smoking and fighting. It's like his default mode. Yeah. So and this is where we, we get our uh, our first view of the huge jacked man who is <laughs> uh, playing Wolverine. Um, so I, I will admit, like when I saw this, I was disappointed that he appeared to be more than five foot three. Um, but it still worked out okay. And not not as wide. I was so happy with him, though, because, again, bar super low. Um, yeah. I don't always want a literal one-to-one. I was, once Tim Burton, you know, made Michael Keaton Batman, and I was like, I, you pulled that off. Uh, yeah. I was like, okay, anything's possible now. Yeah, like I said uh, earlier, Hugh Jackman, this is his first movie. So they, they got a total unknown, and it, it really works well like – I mean, that was the whole plan when uh, Richard Donner made the first Superman movie. He's like, I'm going to cast this guy, Chris Reeve. No one has ever seen this guy before, but he is Superman. Hugh Jackman just plays an incredible Wolverine from the jump. Yeah, he really does. Um, Yeah, the seeing, you know, having been through the journey of Wolverine movies uh, now, seeing Hugh Jackman from behind in the cage, like with his lovely, youthful 20 years ago silhouette. (laughs) Yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> I gasped. I just he's so young and he's he's so beautiful in this movie. Yeah. And it's this it's a beautiful first appearance of this character who yeah. I've at least become very emotionally attached to. The show is back for such a long time. I was like, he sculpted beauty. You know, it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. uh, it is um and that's what they're going for in a way, but they're also trying to set this whole scene. But he's spotlighted and you're just I'm like, that is a fine looking man. It's a yeah. Very beautiful uh, man. <laughs> yeah. I um, hope they don't make him wear a shirt in this movie. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I mean, and I well, I mean, you know, Mystique doesn't. Um, yeah, exactly. Come on. I, I have an uncle who's um Wolverine shaped. He's like five foot even and was a career uh, marine drill instructor. Oh um, wow. And yeah. uh I feel like, you know, if we'd gone for comic book casting, we would have cast my terrifying uncle. But <laughs> I would rather watch Hugh Jackman for five movies. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and so uh, obviously Wolverine is just kicking everyone's ass uh, in these fights. Um, after they're all over, one of the fighters takes exception to this, which leads to Wolverine popping the claws and exposing himself as a mutant. So he has to leave town because this is the recurring theme we see. It's like if you are out in the normal world and you reveal who you truly are, you have to leave. Um, And so he gets in his janky camper truck and uh, (laughs) starts heading down the, the highways of Alberta. And uh, and Rogue has stowed away with him. So then we start seeing this like uh, first he tries to kick her out and then he has a change of heart and he lets her come back in and they sort of figure out. I mean, she obviously knows he's a mutant. He figures out she is. So they, they have this like it's a little bonding thing where you start to see it's like, OK, you know, he, he does have a heart underneath all of this just animalistic aggression, um, which is also pretty sweet. 
yeah, yeah. Reluctant, reluctant father figure Wolverine is definitely one of my favorite Wolverines. And Same. I love that that is sort of where we go right out of the gate with that character. You know, and it's it's not it's not canonically rogue who that happens with, but the mm-hmm. the figure of non-sexualized father figure attachment to young women is a thing yes. that Wolverine does very well. Um, and I enjoy that about him. Um, I remember it really distinctly as the first time that I had that superhero identification thing, right? Where you see the superhero and you have the like, oh, I see a thing in myself. It's a Wolverine moment. And I don't in general <laughs> identify really strongly with Wolverine. <laughs> He's not my guy. Um, but the moment where Rogue asks him if it hurts when he pops his claws and he sort of very quietly says every time. And it's this moment of like, okay, you get to be extraordinary, but there is such a cost. (laughs) And it doesn't mean you stop being extraordinary and also it hurts every time. That like my teenage brain was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And I, I still love that moment. I think it's incredibly elegantly played and it's just really good. I love that whole relationship between the two of them. One of the things I will always be grateful to this movie for is desexualizing Rogue. The The early 90s, mid 90s is where I stopped reading superhero comics um, because it just it was gross. It was there. There were better and more challenging things to read. And it's just the the TNA was not doing it for me. Um, and Rogue was like literally the poster girl for that. Oh, speaking of superhero moments of identification, uh, mine would be Jean Grey. Um, just the highly competent person who doesn't have a clever nickname. <laughs> uh, Your role is speaking in public and uh, yeah. telling people how things work. Yeah, and and you know she's the person who's like project managing everything mm-hmm. to within an inch of its life. Yep. So yeah, yep. yeah that's your that's you. I see that. That's me. How about you, Rob? I don't know. I um, I really was a. Yeah, struck by the the Wolverine rogue interactions in the very beginning too. It was um, just the way he has to, he, the way he kicks her out of this trailer when he's when he finds her, and he's just like, "There you go," and walks off. And and that you know, one minute where he drives down the road and stops, uh, those were the things about Wolverine that I loved. He was an antihero, which is why I loved him so much to begin with. But then, yeah, it was his relationships with with Kitty Pride and with Jubilation Lee and, uh, that, that, yeah, the, the father figure, um, who absolutely does not want that job. I, I love these tender moments and, or these character moments, I think more. It, it was also my first reassurance. I remember when I watched this movie that it's like, Oh, we're not going to get the boring one dimensional, like badass Wolverine who like, he's just a killing machine and, you know, he can survive all sorts of like we didn't get the S&M Wolverine you know like right. the the like hit, hurt me as much as you want I love it you know that kind of thing um, no, we actually got that we have Sabretooth exactly <laughs> yes WCW wrestling legend Tyler Maine oh my god bad in the ring and bad on the stick <laughs> so uh, bad <laughs> yeah also his makeup the the choices with his makeup are just kind of weird yeah. based on a- any number of iterations of the character. Sabretooth shows up to attack Wolverine and Rogue. Uh, Storm and Cyclops show up. Um, they run him off and they bring Wolverine and Rogue back to 
the X mansion um, where uh, sort of we'll fast forward through a bunch of exposition um, <laughs> about where basically Professor X explains everything to Wolverine about uh, how he's raising this child army uh, to save mutants. Wait, that child army. <laughs> <laughs> he puts a nice face on it, but he does explicitly say most of these children are runaways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is also this montage, this like welcome to the Westchester school moment is the only time that we actually get anything resembling a full cast of X-Men. Yes. Um, and it is like you get you get a little bit of Jubilee and Kitty is in the class of kids walking out the door and we or like, through the door. Yes. <laughs> um, but we we get these little flashes of what it would look like to have an actual proper X-Men team. And then we yes. don't see them again. Yep. It yeah, it's sad. I just realized I said this last night that I I didn't see Jubilee when I first uh saw the movie. Maybe even the first couple times I've seen the movie. So it just occurred to me I was scouring the background scenes trying to guess at who each of those kids would be as they, you know, went by for one second in a hallway yeah. shot. Uh and then realized that probably there were there were a few that people picked and there were many that were just kid run down the hallway. Uh, so I should stop agonizing over that. And then so we, we cut to uh, Senator Kelly uh, being abducted by toad and mystique. Um, they are working for Magneto. Um, they bring him to their super secret Island hideout. Uh, and Magneto has a magic machine that transforms Senator Kelly into a mutant, which <laughs> I not until we watched that movie again last night did I realize like that has just really uncomfortable parallels to the worst X-Men story <laughs> that we've read so far, which is the one that we read with Sean Baby, where Magneto has taken over the X-Mansion um, and has uh, you know, created uh, a machine to make magical clone mutants um, with his magnetism powers that seem to work on everything except metal. Yeah, he hypnotizes people with magnetism. In that comic, <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned at the at the beginning, Brian, uh, that you know the exposition at the beginning of the movie is for those who missed high school biology. However, I feel it's important that we note that this diverges significantly from <laughs> the way high school science classes might teach you about genetics or right. magnets. Um, yeah. Yes, in in the yeah. long tradition of magnetism, doesn't work like that. Um, <laughs> Also, mutation doesn't work like that. Also, this is the this is the part where any literal interpretation of the mutant metaphor comes to absolute bits. <laughs> yeah. Because if you imagine this plot as here is the machine that will make you black so that we can all <laughs> understand blackness and be on the same team, or here is the machine that will make you gay so that we can all be on the same like, It's horrifying. I, I had <laughs> that exact thought last night and was like, no one would apply that same use of a machine in that case to try to bring the world together. You yeah, know, not, uh, not even yeah. a villain. Like it's incoherent yeah. as a villain plot. And I feel like that's so my like my overall review of this movie is that it gets <laughs> a lot of the details right and it is thematically just such a broad miss. Yes. Yep. Um yep. and I think that this 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 machine MacGuffin is sort of the core of that 
you know, and it's the Senator Kelly, the kidnapping, the whatever, like this is a lot of Days of Future Past stuff. And we actually see this retread again in the Days of Future Past movie a little bit better. But I, it's the, the, the actual plotty plotness of this part is it just it really comes apart for me it it reminds me of what uh some of my very conservative evangelical extended family members think the liberal agenda is (laughs) which is to kidnap you and turn your children gay yes clearly (laughs) and if you let them watch too many channels on tv they will turn gay that's that's how that's the machine that does it yeah so, so I, I, I struggle with this yeah. plot point. Yes, um, but I do have respect for the evil lair design. I think that the giant underground room is lovely. Yeah, um, and and the giant magnetism machine. Aesthetically, it's brilliant, and and the <laughs> the uh, the basement layers of the X mansion also great design. Like you know, it, everything's very, very uh, late nineties, early two thousands brushed steel and black leather and um under light top light it looks like that was my that was the thing that hung me up right away when we see the the lower section of you know the the x-men section of the mansion i was like it's a comic book so you can say that not only is professor x a professor of many things and super powerful mutant he also is an engineer um he makes his own giant globe planetarium room where he can shoot his mind everywhere. <laughs> and he ha- he's a great designer. Like he just designed this such a crazy aesthetic for, for the he, he hired a team of like 10,000 people to build this and then just wiped their minds afterwards. True. The, that does. It, it that is, that's sounds very, like him, actually. Yeah, it's very that's, in keeping. It's very <laughs> gross. His the way he uses his powers in the first many years of X-Men is <laughs> super gross. Yes. So let's jump back to the X mansion, um, the upper layers of it, which uh, I, I love the look of that mansion, by the way. It's just like it's so old timey Eastern seaboard, dark, polished wood. And just that also is another point where, the again, the details feel so good that yeah. that looked like what the mansion is supposed to look like. Yes. And, uh it's and so it posh. Beautiful. They have horses. It's- I know. I know. Going yeah. down the stable with it's like Wolverine and Professor X talking as they go through the stable, and I was like, "Nice touch. Yeah. Very fancy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's old money. Um. Yeah. So so uh, it's nighttime at the X Mansion. Wolverine's having a bad dream. Rogue uh, hears him crying out in his sleep. She goes to check on him and winds up gets stabbed in the chest for uh, her troubles. But fortunately. She absorbs Logan's healing power and she doesn't die. So that's good. But then uh, Mystique, who's infiltrated the mansion um, in the guise of uh, Bobby Drake, uh, Iceman, um, he uh, tells her that uh, Xavier's angry with her uh, for doing that and she should probably get out of there. So once again, Rogue is on the run, um, which is a pretty heartbreaking moment because, you know, she has been on the run. She just got to a point where she felt like well, maybe this will be home. And then it's like the meanest thing you could do to her possibly is like tell her to run again. The uh, the introduction of Mystique as Bobby Drake, every instance of Mystique, they go way out of their way to make sure you understand it's Mystique. And yes. that, I didn't remember <laughs> it that way. I was like, can this this like ninth time you're doing the thing where you show the guy that Mystique has killed or knocked out that she is now and, ha- you know, uh, disguised as is is insulting you know ninth time shame on you <laughs> yes 
but childhood me, I, so I also, I don't remember, like it's there. We all mm. saw it. We saw it yep. together. We have repeated glints of mystique eyes where glints of mystique eyes are entirely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember, <laughs> my memory of that moment is being unsure um, whether it was just Bobby being mean or whether it was mystique. Um, and as someone who had a lot of like high school bullying, I remember just, I mean, that was emotionally fraught. It's so yes. mean. It is. Yeah. It's so mean. And, and it is possible in, as a teenager to have somebody who you thought liked you or was your friend to turn on you drastically yeah. in a yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's an emotionally affecting moment and you can totally see, she just met this kid. She doesn't know Bobby from a hole in the ground. They had a brief like pseudo romantic like connection. He makes a little ice rose for her. He makes on a little her desk. ice rose for her. That's his move. That's his move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I uh, yeah. If you, if you look at the comic representations of Bobby trying to court women, it, it does make you wonder how it took this long for. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right? I um, he's, and yeah. he's pointed that out in in the you know in the more modern version of him is like uh, uh, how awkward and terrible and overwrought everything was. Uh, yeah, but this was this boy that she had a sort of. Uh, what counted for connection with and and then to be betrayed that way it's really bad it's real tough yeah um so so she hits the road um and she uh tries to board a train professor x tracks her down with cerebro uh the x-men head out to bring her back and then uh there's a big fight at the train station um and uh wolverine and rogue are attacked by magneto and it turns out uh, that Magneto wanted Rogue all along, um, and uh, he kidnaps her, um, and he's going to involve her in his nefarious plans. Meanwhile, like you know, in very true to X Men style, uh, the other X Men basically wind up destroying the train station um, <laughs> to try to save the day. I do remember watching this the first time, watching the train be peeled open by Magneto, and mm-hmm. thought that is because I, I really wanted to be in special effects when I was a kid. This was like all of the things needed to make this train pull apart in this way um, and have the smoke and the sparks. And it's so beautifully shot as Magneto comes in to show it's putting him over. It's showing again, his power. It's like setting up for later, just how powerful he is. Yeah. Um, And they do that constantly with him, which is great because he is that Omega level mutant. I do think also in that same train scene, um, the sort of Claremontian reiteration of kink and immobility and bondage is not something we get a lot of. Um, But the mortification of Big Strong Wolverine being absolutely immobilized and unable to overcome it Mm -hmm. is this really good sort of clash of powers who would win moment where we see Logan actually humiliated on this train powerless it's a really important moment for for that dynamic in another claremontian moment he just had this long conversation with rogue in the you know in the train seat and promised her to to protect her yeah 
And then we see the ways that that's limited, which the X-Men thematically solve by being a really swell team. Yep. Um, but it's Golly. not a really swell team <laughs> moment. It's a no. it's an individuals are vulnerable moment. Yeah. And I think well, it's because because really he had run off by himself to get to mm-hmm. her. He stole Cyclops's sweet motorcycle <laughs> uh, <laughs> to get to the train before everyone else. Um, but had they all been there together as a team, maybe things would have gone better in the station and maybe things would have gone better on the train. Um, yeah. You know. Certainly, you know, there would have been someone to fight Magneto whose bones were not lined with metal, which probably would have helped. So, yeah, I do like uh, this is also where we really get a sense of Scott beyond just somebody to dislike, which, yeah, (laughs) because just like creepy, possessive boyfriend and dislikable guy yeah, with a stick which up his butt like, also that's pretty seemed much right for cyclops you know like that's uh <laughs> when you like my perception of cyclops i always loved havoc when i was a kid if i was you know gonna pick a anybody of that just because he was a weird brother of the guy who runs stuff and he's kind of a screw up and <laughs> wants just, to finish his damn phd yeah <laughs> <laughs> but scott is just so militant and just the everything about him seems like almost the the normal human of the group sometimes he's just overbearing and i think that's part of the dynamic we're trying to show here is the mm-hmm. the wolverine cyclops uh differences yes. <laughs> and uh differences in approach differences in style but uh yeah I, I do i kind of liked how square he is i guess is the best way to put it um he's just uh oh almost unlikable but then you see him be the leader and that's always been the scott summers character where you're like he can do this he's just it's he's not a lot of fun uh you know (laughs) very loyal and he pulls it out in a clinch and that's all you've got yep that's it um so then uh back at the x mansion uh senator kelly shows up uh the newly mutated senator kelly um and uh professor x reads his mind figures out what's going on uh then senator kelly pops like a bag of goo <laughs> yes. so gross it's, it's so gross that yeah. set to me feels like a star trek sick bay and yeah. the yep. like special effects feel like like first season tng level like creature effects when he's starting to swell up um it feels like cool you know, non CGI practical effects stuff. And then it crosses to the bubble <laughs> of water. And I'm like, Oh, that's where it seems totally next generation. And storm is there with him as he expires. And it's like kind of a brilliant acting choice. Like she just spins around on her heel and just tears ass out of there. Like she <laughs> is absolutely horrified by what has happened. I, I, I know this isn't the case, but I want to believe that it was shot uh, in the same way that like alien was shot where they didn't tell the cast what was going to happen. Oh, like when the alien popped out of the stomach and just like, just hang out there, Hallie, like just, just respond naturally in the moment. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's pretty horrifying. It's yeah. gross. Yeah. It's, it's, Real, real bad. Uh, so then uh, Xavier tries to use a Cerebro to locate Rogue, but uh, Mystique had sabotaged it um, by turning the clear fluid to dark fluid. <laughs> I called that superfood, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she put some Soylent in it <laughs> and fried his brain. Um, so then uh, Gene fixes Cerebro, uh, uses it to find Magneto on Liberty Island. He's going to use his... Uh, mutating machine uh, to mutate the UN world leaders uh, at a summit on Ellis Island. 
um, which I was very pleased that the movie drew a distinction between Liberty Island and Ellis Island. They're mm-hmm. two different things. <laughs> so at least they got that part of geography right. And then, uh, you know, the big payoff fight is a, a big fight at the Statue of Liberty, which is a very subtle metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Super subtle. Uh, I have to say this. This reminded me, too, that we were I think we all were desperately trying to not mystery science theater the movie as yes. we were watching it last night. Um, the the volume of the movie was just quiet enough that you could easily joke right over it if you wanted to. And I made a couple cracks, but I tried to save them for when there were just a bunch of flashing effects scenes going on. But it was almost constant like murmuring, you know, Barb's like, why wouldn't Sabretooth, if he's being controlled by Professor X, just pop the helmet helmet off of Magneto? Yeah. Helmet, or his toad's gross tongue to take the helmet off. It was oh. a really dramatic moment. Yeah, can we just do two minutes on Toad's tongue? Because that was maybe the like one of the things I didn't remember as well as other parts of the movie, and I think by far the most upsetting thing in the movie to me. Like he's, I mean, Ray uh, Ray Park is amazing as that character. That's a yeah. terrible character. It's a, it's a nothing character. He brings a lot of fun to yeah. it. Um, especially when he's like leaping on guards. And my favorite one is when he leaps off screen uh, and then you just hear like a, wah! <laughs> he's yeah. like crunching down it's on full, someone. There's some great Foley work throughout this. Like when Wolverine's getting punched in the cage match, you hear these yeah. metal, pum, pum, these pum. metal punch sound effects. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're very subtle, but they're there. There are a lot of people obviously who thought about the details again, down to that sound yeah. um but not exact they're like the overall plot in this crazy whirly machine yeah, it's fine let, let that slide but toad man during the this pandemic just watching somebody lick door you know handles oh. and stuff is pretty freaky <laughs> so gross <laughs> it was the first time though that i was like okay that's why magneto would keep toad around like in a way he could be totally useful if you were you know, an evil person with low standards. <laughs> he's kind of muscle. But he's, I mean, if you take like Toad's performance versus the Sabretooth performance, Toad does a stunning job. Yeah, he's amazing. Considering. Award-winning, yeah. yeah. Here, here we are with this low bar, but it's, it's, it's a solid henching. He leaps 30 feet over it. He's gross and uncomfortable and unsettling and yeah. all, all of that is very well done. When we see Senator Kelly gets abducted, um, that, that part where... <laughs> The uh, he's being walked in by Magneto into the big uh, water room of Magneto's lair and Toad uh, whips out his tongue and eats a, a dove, I think. Um, <laughs> like a, a pigeon little, or, little yeah. pigeon. Yeah. Uh, and he just says, Toad has a wicked tongue, Senator. Just like you. And I'm like, I, I that was the other thing I couldn't help but saying was like, I feel like he told Toad to just wait there until they were walking in. And just <laughs> so I want to see all those scenes where he's like, Toad, here's all you need to do. Just when we walk in, eat the bird. Then I say the line. Okay, let's go over this one <laughs> more time. working on yeah, this. Yeah. It's, it's going to be so awesome. It's going to be, be so awesome. awesome. <laughs> There's yeah. so many moments uh, in comics and, you know, it's a drama. So, you know, you want these beats, but it's just, I, I love to think of them setting them up. And that's yes. just hilarious to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 the payoff is that um, the whole reason that Magneto had kidnapped Rogue was that he, 
he didn't want to kill himself to generate all the energy for his magic mutating machine. Um, uh, so he decided he was going to transfer his power into her and she was going to be sacrificed to do it. They save her. Um, they beat him and, uh, yay. The good guys win. Um, hooray. They leave everybody uh, laying there and fly off. Problem solved. <laughs> in the in the epilogue, uh, both Professor X and uh, Wolverine wind up recovering. Um, Mystique has escaped the boss fight. Uh, she's now impersonating Senator Kelly, um, who no one knows is actually dead except the X-Men. Um, uh, Xavier gives Wolverine a clue to his past uh, that sets up the sequel. He's been having these flashes of the paramilitary uh, institution where he was experimented on, which made him into a Wolverine. And then uh, Magneto winds up getting put in plexiglass jail uh, where he plays plexiglass chess with Xavier. uh, And Xavier says that he's going to refuse to give up on him, which is um, definitely more modern take of the relationship between the two of them where they are old friends and Xavier does not give up on Magneto. He's like, there's, there's still good in you. Your methods are terrible, but you're, you're redeemable. So. Yeah. So my moment there was um, that the uh, leaning over to Douglas is that there is there is not no queerness in the movie. There is that extraordinary chemistry. Those two men. I mean, anytime they're on screen together doing anything, there is this sense of just deep love between them. Yes. And yes. and I love how it plays on screen. I actually think that that little kicker moment is just, and then he knocks over the queen walks away. Uh, it's just, it's such a beautiful moment. And in the middle of like, just the, the heavy kitsch that is there. Um, I, I love them playing on each other. Um, and I do think that there's an intimacy there that is just really would not play as well in a strict heteronormative context. Like that kind of male friendship is really special. Yeah, especially at that time. Um, I think, you know, 20 years later, I think it's, you know, we've gotten a little bit more progressive as a society where you can, men can have a more intimate relationship without it being a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. But but certainly at that time, and, and with, you know, everyone going to see this movie, you know, is, was probably where many of them were probably where Ian McKellen is a gay man. He's been... Uh, he's been out since 88, um, mm-hmm. you know, so um, the two of them with that chemistry, but also just that powerful connection with each other as characters. Um, I think it it plays really, really well in the yeah. movie. And I, I mean, I don't think we're supposed to necessarily read it as a sexual relationship between so them, either. but I do think that the it is a, a boundary rubbing intimacy in that scene. Yeah. Yes. They're more it's, familiar with each other than uh, would normally be seen. I love it so yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> I love it for so many reasons because it's also that whole, it, it starts to talk more about the ideological differences that they have, which are very much like Dr. King and Malcolm X. And, uh, yeah. but I know it's like, I think it, it's, <laughs> I, we say this in the comic more than we do. It's like the idea, they're both violent, obviously super violent. Uh, and they're, <laughs> you know, Dr. Uh, King's child army. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, you can't say that he's the, uh, good guy the non-militaristic uh side of it but those philosophies all this is where i was going they they understand the that there is uh it shows that there's not 
they're two sides of a coin, but it's not even two whole sides. It's like one coin split in half. Yeah. And I mean, and in X-Men right now, a lot of it is, you know, there are certain lines that Xavier won't cross, but he is certainly willing to have other people cross them. For yep. Him. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's also really engaging and interesting. And I think that it, one of the problems of the presentation of Xavier in this movie is that he is intended to be a sympathetic hero all the way through. And I don't think that that character works with that read. He, he has to be at the very least a jerk. Um, but really the more the narrative voice allows Xavier to be, really problematic uh the the better off we are yeah (laughs) and yeah the the ways that the moral purity of xavier is as much about denial and cowardice as it is about uh you know nobility yeah Mm -hmm. well said well that was (laughs) (laughs) x-men just a little ray of sunshine here yeah (laughs) you know it's um it is. It's a very simplistic movie, but it it got us started on the path to being able to do bigger and more interesting things with the genre, at least in films. I think comics had been doing it for years, you know, at that point. But this is where I wouldn't say this is where superhero movies grew up, but it's at least where they had their awkward adolescence, um, and you know, it, it set them on a path to being able to maybe take on some more challenging concepts. And I also think that. If you're looking for a blockbuster movie to do something really challenging, I think you are likely to be disappointed <laughs> because, you know, yeah, it used to be not only are we trying to sell tickets to to middle America, but now, I mean, we're trying to sell tickets worldwide. Yeah. So it, it's like you have to even, you know, water it down further now. Um, but, you know, it at least showed that there was a viability for it. There was a, an audience for it. And you could tell a, a more complex story if not necessarily a more challenging story Uh so katie thanks for joining us yeah where is books with pictures located and and how can we send all of our money to you (laughs) i i so you will find us physically in portland oregon at 1401 southeast division street um it is a bright teal building on the southern edge of lads edition um you can find us online at bookswithpictures.com and on most of the social medias as books w pictures because the width was taken um so uh at books w pictures in various ways um and if you go to bookswithpictures.com we've got a couple of different shopping options uh they are all currently in the form of google web forms because technology is hard and i made this pivot in a hurry to being digitally available uh, so you can click on one form that says, I know what I want. And that is where you put in the titles you were looking for. You can put in another form that says, I don't know what I want. And that's our personal shopping option where you can give me your budget and what you like. And I will put together a package for you. Um, you can also buy gift certificates, monthly subscriptions, or just stop in. And um, we have right now limited hours and a limited browsing space where you can come in and uh, make your choices. And we will check out as low contact as possible uh, and get you safely on your way. Wow. We live in weird times. Yeah. It's very strange. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, uh, it's a wonderful shop. Um, I have discovered so much stuff on the stands browsing there that uh, I was not aware of. Um, I have never personally had uh, a 
comics shopping experience where front and center, uh, I was presented with, Hey, here's some stuff by queer creators. Here's some stuff by POC creators. Um, a lot of creator owned stuff. Um, you know, it, it's always been, I think it's a fairly typical comic shopping experience where even the most well-intentioned shops will often have those things in their own section, but it's sort of like, you know, the organic section of Safeway where it's like, you know, tucked into a little <laughs> corner, um, and, you know, and don't miss what's happening with Batman this month. Um, right. uh, and I, I really, uh, I, I respect and admire the fact that, um, you from the very beginning decided to do something very different and you've been so successful with it. Thank you. Yeah. I have to say it's very close to where my work office is slash was. So I spent um, probably the first five months that it, you were open just walking determinedly by, like, I'm not going to spend <laughs> any money. Oh, God, if I start this again, I had to, you know, try to resist spending money for a while. And then once that stopped, it's been great all right. in there all the time. Yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really encourage everyone within the sound of our voice, uh, please uh, check out Books with Pictures, either in person or online. Um, you will not be disappointed. It's a it's a treasure, um, uh, and it just makes Portland a better place. So, uh, yeah, and you can find us, uh, marvelbythemonth.com. Uh, get us on Instagram at marvelbythemonth uh, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash marvelbythemonth. Uh, and drop us an email, marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. Um, and I think that's it. So um, without any further ado, I will just say that my name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Stay inside and read comics.